Hello and welcome to the Substation Podcast. My name is Tom Edwards and I am joined by my colleague Emma Burns and we're here to talk to you today about clearing prices and dispatch in, in, a, in part of two of our foray into market design and we're going to talk yeah it's going to be about dispatch decisions and design around how you decide what to do in your market that's your giant utility that has to function together as a a single synchronized machine. I, I'm floundering here, Emma. What what is this? <laughs> so yeah, so this is. I think last week we talked about pricing mechanisms, which is a key element of market design. We talked about the difference between marginal pricing and average pricing, and this week we're going to focus on a different element, which is dispatch. So dispatch. By that we mean who's making the decisions about which assets are run and how they run. So fundamentally. Is it the market that decides? So is it the commercial owners of the generators and of the assets that can self-nominate or self-dispatch their assets? Or is there a central party that sits in the center of the market, a system operator or a market operator that, that makes those decisions? So central dispatch markets, where you have that central party or central market operator, are also called pools because that means all energy is sold through that single centralized market. So there's a single spot market for electricity, all electricity that is sold for each half hour or whatever the settlement period is, and all generators have to sell into it, and all suppliers have to buy from it. Conversely, a decentralized or self-dispatch market is a market whereby energy is sold at a variety of different timeframes ahead of delivery. So market players have commercial freedom to buy and sell energy as and when and how they want to. So that could be years in advance, that could be months, days, hours, be in bilateral contracts, it could be in auctions, exchanges, through brokers. There's no fixed rules about how parties sell energy in a self-dispatch market. There's no pooling of energy uh, in in a self-dispatch market. So it's, it's really about two key elements. There is nomination and dispatch so nomination which is parties saying which assets will run and dispatch is then the actual running of those assets so you can have distinction between those two different things you could have market players nominating what they want to do but then a central party dispatching away from those positions so nomination is like this is the plan i have or this is how me and my counterparties have traded and this is what we we are planning to do tomorrow central because there's always a residual part that's that has to be done by a central body just because of the um the intricacies of keeping the energy the electricity system balanced uh, so you're telling that central party this is what we plan to do you don't need to worry about that we've already fixed that for you and then dispatch is where the final kind of you need to be on the bars uh, and by on the bars we mean connected and synchronized the system are capable of exporting energy um, and you need to be running at this level, you know, 100 megawatts between point A and point B. And that that's, you know, typically a SCADA system kind of job where a, a SCADA system oh, is like the computer control language for heavy bits of engineering. <laughs> yeah. um, and it, it's, the, it's the instruction, it's the go, do this signal, and nomination is the plan. 
exactly. And that's the thing. There's this kind of distinction between central dispatch and self-dispatch, but really it's a bit of a false dichotomy because in practice, as you say, we'll always need that centralized role for a system operator to make sure that the system stays in balance, the frequency stays within, you know, prescribed limits. If we don't have that, there's a risk of a blackout. Um, So really the question is kind of how soon does that central role um, get involved and how much is it allowed to do versus how much are you allowing, you know, commercial market participants uh, to do that balancing role itself or themselves. So it's like a spectrum. There's extremes on both sides and presumably there's a long debate about what the best one is. Oh, this is it. And I there has been a debate, I think, since privatisation about what the best outcome is, you know, what's the best, which outcome will result in the best optimization of assets in the system uh, and therefore the best outcome for consumers. So, and by that, I mean the cheapest, you know, most efficient optimization, you know, also the most low carbon, lower emissions. Key question here is do market forces and competition lead to the best outcomes or is a greater degree of centralization and central coordination better for the consumer? You know, which of those two things will lead to a better generation mix um, in terms of emissions and, and price? So there's a, there's also, it sounds like there's a key role for data here because who knows what about what is, is a key question as to whether or not you have a central or a decentralized system because on one hand you could argue that the generators know the most about their asset and um, they have the best view of their plans their maintenance the cost for doing different things who's on shift at that particular time um, uh, what the gas prices they've hedged at are what the ramp rates are and and how those might affect you know their subsequent operations and they're also incentivized to improve that knowledge and improve the machinery because the more control they have, the more they can see the actual direct result of any investment in efficiency or trading strategy and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, the central body knows more about the whole system and, and everything operating together as a whole. So they might have a better view of, well, actually, if you run in this way, that means that the plant down the road can't do another thing. And actually, they're cheaper for something we might need tomorrow. Or you might be the cheapest, but you're behind a constraint on a thermal constraint on the system. So actually we don't want you to run like that because our network can't export that power. So there's this tension there between on the one hand, there's some really good incentives and data for the operator and asset controller and Mm -hmm. they're well placed to operate that. But on the other hand, we might not be getting the most lowest overall cost to the system because there's a whole bunch of data that is unknowable by individual market participants and might only be knowable by somebody who has a total view of the system. Is that the best word, total? I was, I was thinking godlike when you, when you <laughs> were looking for the word there. No, but it's exactly that. I mean, it's data, but it's also to do with market design, right? I mean, this is just one element of market design. And, you know, how effective this would be would, de- would depend on other elements as well, right? So I think a key thing here is locational pricing which we talked about a few weeks ago with, with Ed Burkett. And there's obviously a, a hot debate here in, in Britain. There's the big question of should we move to more locational marginal pricing? Um, and really, if you did have a world where you had more locational marginal pricing, what, what you're doing there is, 
it's really giving the market greater signals about location that it doesn't have now. So at the moment, we have a market that assumes a single price zone. There aren't there are some locational signals through transmission tariffs, but there aren't and losses. And losses. Don't forget losses. Very important. Um, but it's not really baked into the market, right? The wholesale market doesn't see any of that. It's affected by it, but it doesn't see it. If you were in a world where you had location and marginal pricing, so therefore the market was able to respond and you know could balance on the basis of those locational differences. And similarly, if you were in a world where you had a shorter settlement period, so where you had a 15-minute or a 5-minute settlement period, the market would be better able to reflect those locational and temporal differences that National Grid now needs to, to manage through the balancing mechanism. So I think the, this is, yeah, the central versus self-dispatch is one key element of market design, but it's inherently linked to the other key elements of market design as well. Because if you... Well, the argument often is, is in a locational market, it's practically impossible for the market to be designed in a way that doesn't use central dispatch. I can think of a way you could do it, but it would be very complicated and it might not solve before you had to run the system. And um, you could, yeah, you could kind of copy the way that the internet providers provide capacity on their system. However, they've got the bonuses that they can kind of delay your packet arriving whereas in electricity mm-hmm. you can't mm-hmm. um you can think i can think of a way of merging self-dispatch and locational price together but it would be so much easier if it was central well exactly i think in a world where we had zonal pricing so where we didn't have such such granular locational pricing then you could quite happily marry self-dispatch with zonal pricing because it would just, you know, the effect of that in Britain might be to just split the country in two or three or whatever it is. Um, and you could have the market run as such. But I think in a world where you are going to that really, you know, the nth level of complexity and having fully locational marginal pricing, then it seems to be that a pool would probably be a better outcome or a central dispatch market. Um, and I think that is what National Grid have concluded in their first assessment of location and marginal pricing is that a central a more central dispatch market or a more pool type market will be necessary to facilitate that we keep using the p word and it would be remiss of me not to ask what, what we had a pool what, what's going we on here give me an example of, of what what it's, we're talking about it that's the thing it's a bit of a dirty word to say really because i think well so yes you're right we had when we first privatized here in britain um, in England and Wales specifically, we had an electricity pool. So it was the England and Wales pool. And you know, that happened in 1990. Effectively, what we had there was a, you know, a fully central dispatch market. So you had, at the day ahead stage, all generators would bid in their prices, they would bid in their technical capabilities, and National Grid would effectively take control in terms of both nomination and then subsequently dispatch of those assets on the basis of what it thought was the most efficient outcome, ported by obviously clever people and clever algorithms to help make those decisions. So you had a central spot market for energy and a single price paid for that energy. 
And alongside that, you also had a capacity market, uh, which was which ran alongside the spot market. All generators had to sell their energy through this pool. And then all suppliers had to buy their energy from that pool. And you had a, this algorithm, which I believe was called Goal, that would, was used to determine, in the first instance, an unconstrained schedule on what the best outcome for generation to match demand would be. So by unconstrained, I mean it effectively just ignored the physical characteristics of energy. It assumed that there were no locational constraints, there were no reserve requirements, there were no reactive power requirements, etc., etc. And energy was just a product like any other, you know, homogenous blocks of, of megawatt hours. And that unconstrained schedule uh, was then used to determine this single marginal price. So like we were talking about last week, it was a single price paid to all generation that was generating for that half hour. So we had a half hour settlement period. Um, and that meant, yeah, the, the most expensive asset, the marginal asset, so that the last most expensive and therefore last needed to meet demand was the price setting asset. And every other asset that was on during that time would receive that price as well. Um, and then sort of separate to that, then any other assets that were needed to manage other kinds of imbalances. So the locational imbalances, um, you know, technical system things like reactive power and inertia, etc., were dispatched then in addition to the unconstrained schedule. But they weren't paid the single marginal price for that. They were paid a pay-as-bid cost price for those assets. So that's that's the market that we used to have, the pool. Um, and I suppose other markets still operate in that way internationally. So here in Ireland, uh, we still have a pool. It's kind of. Well, let's get back to that <laughs> distinction. It's it's a net pool, I would say. So yeah, there, there is, I think, yeah, what, what we've kind of laid out so far is the kind of the two end, the two extremes, right? There's the full pool where you have to bid in and that's the only kind of game in town. There's the fully self-dispatched market, but there's a few flavors in between that for sure. Yeah, I suppose pool, it's an, it's kind of amorphous, is that the right word? Amorphous term? Yeah. So you say, you say we had a pool mm-hmm. and now we're in self-dispatch. Did, did GB move from one opposite to the other and why? So yeah, we had, we moved away from the pool market. So we had a number of concerns, which we'll come on to, about the, the pool market in the late 90s. And we introduced this self-dispatch, this new busy self-dispatch market in 2001. And really the, the kind of guiding principle here was, let's treat electricity as if it's like any other commodity. Let's have less control over how it's bought and sold. And let's allow market participants to trade as they want. We'll introduce more commercial freedom. So that was kind of the, the key principle behind the, the new electricity trading arrangements, NETA, which were introduced in England and Wales in 2001. And then Scotland joined in 2005. We also, as part of that, we moved away from having a, a market that had separate energy and capacity payments so we moved to an energy only market which is i think something we discussed in previous podcasts but effectively there is only one payment there is only one payment for energy and the principle is that that should rise to drive investment that you don't have a separate investment payment or or capacity payment 
in this self-dispatch market, another key principle was to reduce that central, the role of that central market and also the role of that central operator. So the system operator role, National Grid's role, was reduced from one um, that had, you know, day ahead interventions and a big role in nomination and dispatch to one that was a residual balancer. So it was expected that the market would do most of the balancing. You know, they were the ones making the decisions, which generators are the best generators to meet demand, and also what the forecasts of demand were. They would then tell National Grid which generators they wanted to nominate. And really the role for the residual balancer then was just that, I think it was estimated at around 2% of the time of actions, you know, just readjustment of actions in the balancing mechanism for things like locational constraints, unforeseen imbalances, reserve requirements, etc. But really the, you know, the market was doing the heavy, heavy lifting here. Unlike in the pool, there was no real market in real time. We used to have a single price, you know, a single clearing price. We have a homogenous energy product. Under NITA, we moved to having a balancing mechanism. So, you know, that meant there's, it's, it's not a homogenous product. There's all different kinds of things the National Grid is procuring in that residual mechanism. So I think, yeah, you and I have often used the analogy of it's like a fruit basket. So under a homogenous market, it's apples and apples. And in the balancing mechanism, it's a, it's a whole fruit basket of different things. The banana of reactive power. <laughs> exactly. The pineapple of inertia. <laughs> <laughs> the grapes of slow reserve. <laughs> the kiwi of rock off. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um... So yeah, so under this market... The kumquat of SO2SO interactions. (laughs) Definitely a kumquat, isn't it? Everyone's least favourite fruit. Least favourite and also ambiguous fruit. (laughs) So yeah, in this market, again, we've got... So we've got a bigger role for the market, smaller role for national grids, smaller role for the central mechanism. Uh, So a big part of that was, it was all about incentivizing the role for the market. So it was about encouraging ex-ante trading. So encouraging parties to trade ahead of time. Again, no constraints or rules about how they do that. They can trade years ahead, days ahead, months ahead. Um, But there was an incentive to do that. So rather than just what we might call spilling into the pool, so rather than just if you're a generator just selling all your energy into the central market, we had these imbalanced prices that were originally designed to encourage that ex-ante trading. So they're originally designed effectively like penalties to stop people from relying on that central role. So they were kind of meant to reinforce this residual balancer role that National Grid had. Now, caveat there that Ofgem reversed part of that in 2015 and introduced a single imbalance price. But that's uh, maybe a rabbit hole we don't need to get down to right, <laughs> right now. But yeah, fundamentally, that, that's kind of how our, our market looks now. So yeah, that's, that's broadly it. We moved from a market that was much greater role for national grid, much more centralization, much more prescription in terms of how generators behaved and what they did to a world where the role for the market was much greater, the role for national grid was much less, and there's much more commercial freedom in terms of how parties 
buy and sell energy and you know when they do that how they do that and the price that they're paid so in our in our world now there's really no single price for energy because that's all left for the market to decide how and when they want to trade and and hedge so why did we move from the pool to a self-dispatch market was there a reason that that was felt to be a better idea so we moved away for a number of reasons from the pool. I think some were related to the market and competitive conditions at the time, and some were related to the market design itself. So worth noting what was going on at the time in terms of competition in the market. So the accusation was at the time, certain parties were able to exercise market power effectively. So they were able to take advantage of the pool and the fact that we had a single marginal price and take advantage of their position within the market and the fact that they owned large proportions of flexible price setting plant. And because of those factors, they were able to manipulate the price, which arguably, arguably was partly a market design issue, but was also partly a competition law issue. So we could have dealt with that time by using competition commission powers to separate out, you know, large um, dominant assets or dominant generators. But in practice, what we did was completely redesign the market. <laughs> I mean, and also, as, you, as I said, there was other concerns about the market design itself in, in addition to the kind of market power concerns. So, you know, the, I suppose fundamentally the market, it's felt like quite a complex market and price setting asset dispatch was determined by the central algorithm and the central party. Now participants in the British market currently might be familiar with the concept of skip rates, which is this idea that national grid doesn't necessarily dispatch assets in economic order um, and effectively I suppose those concerns could have been tenfold you know under the pool because National Grid was doing all the dispatch so if you don't have you know visibility as to why assets are being dispatched or you don't necessarily have trust in the central party to be doing a an efficient job then you may express concerns about that about that process. One of the concerns I have had highlighted to me in the past was that the old pool design insulated buyers of electricity from the decision about what to buy and when to buy because they just had the guarantee that if they took power at that time that was the price and so they didn't really need to do much and there wasn't it was felt that there wasn't a lot of activity in purchasing electricity in long term and hedging and that actually by shifting to self-dispatch because it's, it's not just on the generation side, it's also on the load side, that they would be more exposed to the price signal and therefore take more of an interest and you might get more demand side participation and maybe more DSR. Exactly. I think, yeah, there was definitely a concern that the demand side was much more passive under the pool. As you said, you know, we had generators bidding in, but suppliers are actually just taking the price. Now, I suppose what I would say to counter that is you did have other trading around the pool price, which we haven't mentioned yet. So, you know, participants could have financial contracts 
around the pool price or contracts for difference. Participants could, supply side and generation side, were able to strike up effective prices that were different to the single marginal price. So you could see the demand side getting involved in that longer term way. But I think probably what you're talking about is the more closer to real time from the day ahead stage through to real time. We didn't have demand bidding in and actively participating in in demand side response, which again, I I think is definitely a fair concern. Although I suppose the, well, the question I would have is in the counterfactual, have we seen active demand side since NETA has been introduced? Not to a huge extent. Not to a huge extent. Yeah, so passive demand side was definitely a concern um, about the pool. As I mentioned, complexity of price setting. Its governance was also bad. Governance was a key. Well, this is to be debated on another episode because we obviously, maybe even a whole series, <laughs> we need to devote to, to governance. But, well, my simplistic, how my simplistic view of it is that under the pool, governance was much more centrally determined. So we didn't have participation of market participants. The way the governance works in the pool was it, it was a common contract like uh, the BSE and the Cuscar, but in order to change the pool, you needed every signatory to agree to it. So even though there were some common sense changes proposed, because it was always against the interest of one of the participants, they could always veto the change. Whereas even though the current system is not brilliant, it changes. At least it does change. And it's it's much so even small administrative things couldn't take place under the pool was one of the problems. Whereas actually the current system is very good at small administrative changes. It's just not very good at big bang changes. But then again, neither was the pool. That's interesting because I always thought the pool just had less involvement from the market and didn't have... So that idea of having a power to veto, I didn't realise that existed. I always thought it was kind of just the regulator or your national grid who proposed changes, but... That's the way it was explained to me. I I obviously wasn't there, um, but that's the way it was explained to me in the past. Yeah, I think that, again, that was another key change when we moved to NITA, so the new electricity trading arrangements, was that we moved to a more multi-party... Con- multi-party based contract approach where it was kind of the, by consensus I suppose the changes were made and through arbitration with between industry and off-gen. Okay so we've seesawed from one extreme to the other in the past. I feel like you have a preference. Why might a pool be better? What are the advantages of, of going back to a pool? Why might it be a good time now to consider central dispatch instead of self-dispatch. I suppose this is the point where I disclose that I do have a preference and a bias. So I, I cut my teeth on market design in 2010 in over here in Ireland for the Irish regulator and who had a fully central dispatch market at the time. And we're in a position of digesting European legislation, which is all about moving to a more self-dispatch market which I would say was based on, ultimately originally based on, well, I as I see it, the British market design. They were kind of the, the poster boy for, for a self-dispatch market. And they, I think they kind of influenced European legislation and, and European rules to a great extent. So I am definitely biased <laughs> towards a self-dispatch market, so I, I will disclose that. However, I do think 
that there are good reasons to reconsider our position here in Britain as to whether we want a, a self or central dispatch market. Under the self-dispatch market, we've assumed that there is going to be this small, tiny 2% readjustment role for national grid. And what we've seen in practice is that role has gotten much bigger over time. So if you just look at balancing costs in term, and balancing volumes in terms of the amount of actions being taken, some half hours will be upwards of 50% of all energy. So it's, a, it's a far cry from 2% is what we assumed would, would be happening going forward. The, the role for National Grid in terms of redispatching assets because of locational constraints, all the system balancing reasons we mentioned earlier, but also unforeseen imbalances. We have a 30 minute settlement period and a lot can happen within 30 minutes. If the nation is watching football and there's penalties or there's not penalties or Coronation Street, there is a wedding. <laughs> my, my references for pickups are a little bit dated, but the point is that there is that the system is much less predictable, half hour to half hour. Then start layering in things like electrification of heat, electric vehicles, really that the kind of energy imbalance role is becoming a lot bigger and arguably complicated. So the approach that we're taking now in terms of these increasing system balancing uh, requirements is to introduce more and more different markets for these new system balancing requirements. So we've, I think just last week, we saw National Grid publish position papers on new markets for inertia, new markets for reactive power. That's obviously in addition to markets for response, markets for reserve, markets for energy, you know, coarse energy balancing. I'm sure I've forgotten a few. And again, I'm not obviously not against markets. I think they're excellent tools to get things done. But in my mind, there comes a point where we've just got too many and market participants might struggle to to balance all of those things and um, coordinate all those things. And it makes, so someone's got to be in charge of that optimization problem. And if you've got lots of contradictory signals because they're all separated out and market participants can't properly value the price between the different markets, then then the solution that that system comes up with is not going to be the best solution. Whereas a market that can see all of the requirements of all the various markets and a price that's at least fungible if not necessarily the same, but is a comparable between them or clearly communicated is what you're trying to say is, is going to result in a better dispatch. And it's, it's the market role there, but it's also investors role as well, right? Like if I'm investing now, I might need forecasts for energy, for capacity, and all those other things we just mentioned to build up my, my investment case and my revenue stack. That's hard. <laughs> that's really hard. And preach. Yeah, yeah. I know that's your job. <laughs> so, but yeah, and I just I just think just fundamentally something in me just feels like the role is getting bigger. Let's not pretend like it's small because I think a self-dispatch market is predicated on this idea that the system operator's role is is residual and small. Let's not pretend like it is, because it's not. Uh, let's formally recognize that in the nomination and dispatch processes, and therefore we'll all have better visibility about what's going on. Um, and again, I think when we think about the next stage for the system, 
So we talk, we think about heat, transport, etc. All these other vectors that we need to optimize against. You know, it just adds a whole other dimension of complexity on top of just the energy system. So again, intuitively for me, that makes more centralization for real-time operations and close to real-time operations attractive. Would you say a, a, like a self-dispatch market was designed for the market of the 1990s or the late 1990s where you've got lots of large power stations or, well, relatively few numbers of large power stations that are stable and predictable, but the market of tomorrow or even today is actually large numbers of quite small power stations that are actually either have very high optionality value because they're storage or flexible generators or don't actually really know with 100% certainty what they're going to be doing tomorrow. Exactly. I think it's that. And then it's also, I mean, it's the location element here as well, right? We, when we had just transmission connected assets, we didn't, locational constraints probably weren't as much of a factor. We knew where the assets were. We had visibility. We knew what they were doing. Whereas now we're moving to a system where there's, you know, a huge number of disparate assets that could be behind, you know, on distribution networks, low voltage networks, behind various constraints. That changes things so much. Yeah. And they were designed holistically because when you connected, you know, before Connect and Manage, um, if you connected a large power station, it's likely that the TSO had done some design work to make sure that the, the network was capable of exporting the power from that power station. And you hadn't connected to a foreign network that didn't, have to worry about the transmission system or all those sorts of interactions so actually nowadays the network and the generation mix aren't planned together yeah exactly so is the other benefit like I, you've talked to me in the past that there's a kind of a trading or a pricing benefit could you explain yeah. that bit so this yeah a key thing that we had under the pool was a single central reference price. So we had a single marginal price that all energy was paid for each half hour. There was a price for energy. When we moved to NETA, that was kind of thrown out the window. We do not have a single price for energy anymore. Prices for energy are paid all in different contracts at different time frames. Might be if you pay for your energy two years in advance, you'll get paid a different price for your energy a day ahead versus an imbalance. So it's it's a much more kind of disparate view of, of what prices look like under a self-dispatch market, which again was kind of part of the point of moving away from the pool. We didn't want to have that single price. We didn't want to have that single marketplace that could be influenced or, or manipulated. We wanted commercial freedom for people to buy and sell as and when they wanted to. However, I think we, we really lost something there when we moved away from having a single marginal price because that was a really, really clear reference price for energy in real time. We knew what the, the price was in real time in a way that we just don't anymore. There is no single price in real time. If I'm an asset in Britain and I'd offer my energy into the balancing mechanism, I'll get paid as bid. So that means I'll just get paid whatever I've submitted in could be 20 it could be 60 it could be 100 national grid may or may not need me or i could go into imbalance if i have excess energy i could spill and there is a single imbalance price so that will be which is set by the marginal ish <laughs> asset again let's not get into the weeds there but you know we have a single marginal 
price for imbalance. So I, I might get paid 100 in that outcome. But those two things are fundamentally different. There's no single price for energy in real time. What we do have is a single price for energy at the day ahead stage. So the wholesale market, well, we do have, okay. Two prices. Yeah, we have two prices. What we used to have before Brexit was a single, well, we do, I mean, we have a clearing price at the day ahead stage and we have well-traded markets that are very liquid, that participants, you know, they, they trust the prices at the day ahead stage. So that means that when you have contracting, so long-term contracting, in the energy market, that will often be linked to the day ahead market because that's the price, that's where the reference price is, that's the price that we trust. You cannot currently have any kind of long-term or financial contract linked to a real-time price because we do not have a single real-time price. And that really matters for a number of different reasons. So how people manage risk and hedge risk in the wholesale market, you can do that physically or financially. So physically means you are trading and you're backed by an asset. So, you know, you might own an asset or you've got a, you know, a physical contract with an asset and they will physically deliver for you in real time. Financially, on the other hand, you might have other mechanisms like contracts for difference um, or other financial contracts. You could have financial traders involved that might help you hedge the risk around the price. So in the current world, I am operating Tom's nuclear power station, Yuldi Tom, good old nuclear power station. (laughs) And I want to get some certainty on how much I'm getting paid. In the current world, I go to a market, find a counterparty, sell that power. And Mm -hmm. I've now got to deliver that power when I said I would at that level. But I've been paid for that. I've got my revenue. The, the risk now is just delivering against my contracts and and what the imbalance price is. So I've already kind of done all my hedging. There's not much I can do about the imbalance price. So my best bet is to stick to the contracts I've signed. In the with a in the world with a reference price, I can set up instead of a um, instead of selling my contract, I can sign a deal with somebody to pay the difference to the price. So. I can have a financial contract which just says, I'll pay you the difference between the reference price and some price that we agree with each other. I know I'm going to get paid at the dead reference price or whatever the ref- the clearing price is in the, in the central dispatch market. I just need, to- I've signed an agreement, which means that I either just get paid or are paid or pay the difference between the price to what I've agreed with this other financial counterparty. And they don't need to have a physical position in the market because it's just a number in a spreadsheet and all they need to do is have cash. And I've um, hedged my position. And you can, like, there are non-physical traders in the market, but they have to have a physical position to be a non-physical trader and they've got to cash themselves out at the end against a price that's quite hard to forecast because it's an imbalanced price and it's only supposed to be the residual part of the market. So it's a bit harder to set that up. Exactly. And you have, you know, you do have financial trading up to the day ahead stage. So again, as I mentioned, that day ahead price, those day ahead markets, they're liquid, the prices are trusted. So you can wrap financial contracts around that price in a way that you cannot for the real time price. And I think, I mean, your example there, you were a nuclear, but it's, I suppose, even more exciting if you are a smaller party, demand side response, independent generator, independent supplier. I've got a battery on a factory 
um, that's been put in there just to shave off some peak prices. But peak prices are hard to access and they're much less liquid than the day ahead market. But they can be quite lucrative if you get them right. So it's, it's just much harder to hedge them because they're harder to access, harder to predict. Whereas if there was a centralized reference price for that peaking price, actually all I need to do is sign a financial contract with somebody around what I think the peak price is. And then all I have to do is sit there and export when, when the price is right. Exactly. If in a single, when you have a single central reference price, if you're a generator, independent, and I'm an independent supplier, we can find each other much more easily. And I think, you know, if you look at what happened after we moved to NITA, so in 2001, where again, you got rid of the central reference price, you introduced these imbalanced prices, they really strengthened that incentive to be physically balanced. We saw a huge increase in the degree of vertical integration in the market. So we saw, you know, the, the strategy for suppliers was to move away being move away from being an independent supplier and instead start buying up generation. So that the incentive was to Well it was the generators buying the suppliers, but Oh yeah. <laughs> much much as but the incentive was for those two assets to find each other and physically, you know, consolidate. Yeah. Especially after the the independence kind of flew into a brick brick wall and spectacularly proved why <laughs> Uh, in physical hedging is better than financial hedging in a self-dispatch world in a self-dispatch world exactly exactly and that that's the thing that that that's what that market that's the incentives it creates um and again as we've said a couple of times there's nothing wrong with vertical integration inherently there's nothing wrong with it however i think there is something wrong with it where it is the only strategy to managing real-time balancing risk where there aren't alternatives that you can trade financially or be independent and manage it that way, I think then it is it is problematic. It is a problematic system. And I guess the other thing is that linking back to the world of the future versus the world of the past is that it's becoming fundamentally harder to know what the future will look like because of the generation mix. Um, so actually having a clearer reference price and taking away... Um, some of that means that you can have more independent parties, more smaller parties, which is probably a more, I don't know, likely outcome. It might be better for them. Whereas in the current self-dispatch world, if everything gets harder to predict and um, closer to real time, you're just going to turn the needle on vertical integration a bit more. Um, and actually you'll, find that the best way of managing the risk is to become vertically integrated which is not bad it's just the best way of managing the risk and it might not be in everyone's interests that's the thing i think when it's the only way of managing the risk i think then it is bad i don't think it's inherently vertical integration isn't inherently bad in and of itself but when it's the only option and therefore it excludes independent operators then yes it is a bad thing in my in my mind and there's also other i mean there's other pros of of having that reference price as well so i mean we've talked about electricity market reform before we've talked about you know the contract for difference for renewable assets the capacity market for for firm reliable technology arguably they could be better designed if you did have some sort of real time reference price that you could link delivery to 
So at the moment for the CFD, for example, that's linked to the day ahead price. And that can lead to issues then if the, if so for example, a wind asset is receives the day ahead price or receives a subsidy linked to the day ahead price isn't then needed. We need to pay it to turn down. If we were in a world where that just linked to the real time price, we wouldn't have that issue. Um, and similarly, the capacity market, if we link that to the real time market or real time price, we could really sharpen incentives for those assets to actually be available uh, and, and generate when, when they're needed. Cool. Because the, the capacity market, you're saying that instead of having like an arbitrary penalty, you'd have um, maybe a dispatch or a, well, a strike price within the capacity market to say, actually, you know, um, the price is going to be, if the price goes above £600, you have to pay the difference back. And so that's your penalty for missing out is that if you don't generate, you won't get this, the more than £600, which you won't be able to pay back to the um, the government. You'd change the incentive to hedge and who might be hedging and, and who, who it might be. Do you think there'd be any impact on competition on any particular parties or...? As Central Dispatch Advocate, TM, <laughs> I'm clearly in favour of this and I think it would have a positive impact on, on participants because I do think... As you mentioned before, I think, you know, being an independent, being a smaller participant would be easier in a world where you do have that single central market, you know, where you're guaranteed on being used, where there's more economic dispatch and where there's a clear reference price. The other factor is then that you could see more financial trading in this world as well. So you could have more participants involved in, in helping parties in the market hedge. As you mentioned, you you see that happening to the day ahead stage currently. There's the likes of banks and financial institutions who are involved in helping people hedge to the day ahead stage, but that can't go past the day ahead stage currently. But fu fundamentally for me, things are changing more after the day ahead stage than they used to. Consumers demand with electrification, with all kinds of different factors is becoming more changeable and less predictable. And I think being able to better hedge and better adjust market positions closer to real time is more and more valuable. Whereas just relying on kind of a day ahead position doesn't do the job for me anymore. I think what you're, it's important to say here that you actually think that the day ahead market works really well. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what you want really is to move all of that or a lot of that liquidity closer to real time and create the kind of financial markets that exist around the day ahead and the kind of trading and option and you know hedging that goes on and bring that that would still exist but there'd be like a nomination stage at the day ahead where you say okay we've already done this clear us out at this day ahead stage and then the clearing price will be set in real time based on the actions and also by the sound of it we want you want things like five minute settlement and uh, whether or not whether or not we could ever actually deliver that is a is another question. Um, uh, yeah, five minute settlement, maybe redu reductions of gate closure, um, and those kind of things. And and then what you're really creating here is a reference price around balancing and flexibility, not just coarse energy, because you'd probably still have a lot of those markets there that are there for nomination, that are there for long term trading, um, but actually you're allowing participants who are providing flexibility or short-term optionality to the system to access a reference price 
for their flexibility, which enables them to sign CFDs, sign financial agreements that make investing in them easier. I think that's the thing as well. It's not one or the other. It's not a fully central dispatch market like we had in the pool or a fully self-dispatch market. Probably there's a sweet spot in between where there's what you might call a net pool, where you do have a central market of some kind, as you've outlined, for balancing, for flexibility, where you've got, you know, a clear algorithmic economic cost-based dispatch and a clearing price applying to that. But you're also allowing participants that commercial flexibility to, to hedge um, in, in forward timeframes. And the other thing you're saying is that this is going to work. You think this is good with or without locational pricing because it's necessary with the locational pricing anyway because of how complicated it is yeah but also you think that this should be done even if we don't have locational pricing again i would argue without locational pricing this probably becomes more important i i think it's quite poetic actually because you've got 1990 one extreme 2001 the other extreme and then eventually we find a middle ground (laughs) Well, I think that's a good point to end on. So hopefully we've set the world to rights. <laughs> <laughs> and um, thank you for listening. My my uh, my name is Tom Edwards. And my name is Emma Burns. You've been listening to the Substation Podcast. You can follow us on at Substation Podcast on Twitter. We have a LinkedIn where we post about when we put stuff up. Um, I'm also at Notional Grid on Twitter. And Emma is at Energy Burns. Um, so you can follow us there and I, I posted I post silly things about energy markets and sensible things and Emma posts mainly sensible things no I post very little I just follow you oh. and also my dad <laughs> but thank you for listening <laughs>